Biblical sexuality. I hope you've been enjoying the sermon series. Today we are going to jump into part four called Has God Said? Before we do that, I'd like to start off by praying. Yeah, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it is alive and it is powerful. And in Hebrews, it talks about it being sharper than any two-edged sword. That, Lord, as we look into your word today, as we read your scripture, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would you know, bring life to it, that you would help us to interpret it and understand it. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us as we wrestle with some of these topics, that you would keep us united in the spirit, that even as we engage on some of these topics this week in the life groups and in our community, we just pray for wisdom and discernment. We pray that you show us how to practically live this out in the world that we live in today. So we invite your Holy Spirit to lead, give me the right words to say, in Jesus' name, amen. My name is, and we're going to start with the person on the top left-hand corner, and we're going to work down to some different people with different stories. My name is Leslie. I was raised in the church, or she was raised in the church when she was seven years old. She believed that she was supposed to be a boy and struggled with her gender identity from a young age. And when she began to dress differently in her class and amongst her friends, she started to get bullied by her classmates. And she said, people will always gravitate to where they are loved. And if they don't find love in the church, they will go elsewhere. And she found love in the LGBTQI community and subsequently she has got married to another woman. Dan grew up in a very strict home, very strict religious background. And he would say that he got burnt by the church. He said people um, who are attracted to the same sex don't end up leaving the church because they are told that same sex behavior is wrong. They leave because they are dehumanized, ridiculed and treated like an other. Dan is not a friend of Christians. Actually, he hates Christians. Um, he has become a, quite a staunch um, gay activist, and he will tell you that if there is an opportunity for him to make a scene, he will make a scene, because he feels so strongly about how he's been treated by the church. Jason, on the other hand, picture number three, he grew up in a good, stable family. He was known as a God boy in his primary school. From a young age, he was on fire for the Lord. He was leading his friends to Jesus. He was passionate about the church. And um, when he started hitting his puberty years, his teenage years, he started dealing with some same-sex attraction, which he struggled with. And he said he prayed for many years that God would take some of these desires away and nothing seems, seemed to change. He studied the Bible and he realized there's not much that, that talks about um, consensual same-sex relationships. So he got married and he's adopted children and he runs a gay Christian network. Maddie is a self-proclaimed lesbian. When she was nine years old, she was raped by her father. And this rape continued for four years. And her father said to her, if you ever tell another person, I will kill you. And, and uh, Maddie isn't a lesbian because she has same-sex attraction to, to ladies. She's a lesbian because she says she'll never allow another man to touch her again. John has same-sex attraction. He actually studied and he went to Bible school and he believes that same-sex desire is a sin and he's committed to a life of celibacy. He's never engaged in any sexual activity with another man. He's chosen a celibate life. Tabor 
was regularly beaten up for being gay. He was physically, mentally, and verbally and emotionally assaulted on a daily basis. This led to chronic migraines, debilitating depression, suicidal thoughts, and a host of other mental, physical, and emotional problems. He wasn't called by his name Tabor, he was called by the name Faggot. I was stalked, I was spat on, I was ostracized. On one occasion, I was assaulted in a full classroom and nobody intervened, not even the teacher who was present. Throughout school, Tabor was treated like a monster, a subspecies of the human race. He said, I was told that the very essence of my being is unacceptable. His parents ended up kicking him out of their house, and at the age of 23, he committed suicide. Homosexuality, a label that is not even 100 years old, but if you look back even to early Bible times, this is not a new topic. It was first introduced by a German psychologist who divided all humans into two categories based on their sexual orientation, homo and hetero. Before we talk about this topic, before we talk about homosexuality, I want you to be aware that we are talking about real people. So even this week when you maybe talk about this topic in your life group, I want you to be sensitive because maybe you're talking about another person's parent. Maybe when you say something and you just blurt something out without thinking about it, you are talking about someone's sister or someone's child or someone's really close friend. So to just I ask you, I beg you to be sensitive when you talk about your own opinions or feelings and just be sensitive to the words that we use. Now this is part four of a sermon series on, on godly sexuality. And um, I invite you to go back last week and if we looked at the story or this idea of a creation design, was there, when we look at the traditional historical view, was there a creation design that God had for his children, his, create, his creation? Then we see that in Acts 3, there is the fall, and we see the entrance of sin into the world and the brokenness, the broken world that we live in now. We are all cracked icons. We are all cracked image bearers of God. We all deal with the consequences of sin. And that's why when you read some of these stories, you read stories of people that have been abused, or had major rejection or pain. Some of them have had good family backgrounds and have been influenced in different ways. But there are always stories behind faces. I'm never surprised anymore by the stories I get to hear when someone comes and actually opens up. So firstly, I want to apologize. This topic is too big for a 35-minute sermon on a Sunday. I apologize that I'm going to use broad strokes to talk about some areas, and I'm not going to be able to go into the detail that maybe some of you would like. So many of you would say, but this, and what about that, Paul, and how about this? I cannot cover it all just in this session this morning. I am a man who is attracted to women. I view scripture from a certain point of view. I've got a certain upbringing. And as I look at scripture this morning, I trust that even as we wrestle through the interpretation of it, that this is my opinion, this is my stance, and I understand that different people sitting here this morning may view things differently and may see it from a different framework. I also would like to start off with an apology to the gay community. And when I read these stories, church, the church can be... I think the church can 
really fail at representing Jesus well. I think the church can be homophobic. The church can have very particular views. Even though we are holding to God's vision of marriage and sexuality, sometimes we've lost God's heart for those that are different to us. And um, we can be blind to our own hypocrisy. The church loves some of these hot potato topics. And um, then we decide not to talk about other topics that scripture is quite clear about. And we choose where we want to focus on and we can have double standards. We can have double standards with what the Bible says with regard to sexual immorality and um, divorce, biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage and some of these, those things. And I don't think as a church, I'm not the representative of the church to really give you this apology, but I want to apologize if you're watching online or you watch this at a, at a later point. I don't think the church has represented Jesus well when it comes to dealing with this community of people. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry even for some of my opinions and um, yeah. Jesus seemed to do it right. Man, he said some radical things. Man, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it out. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. But then these unsaved sinners wanted to hang out with him. How did he manage to do that? A lady's brought before him who's being caught in adultery. And he says to the guys that are ready to stone or let the first person without sin cast the first stone, they all disappear. And he says to her, lady, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And he says, I also don't condemn you or accuse you, but go and sin no more. How did he manage to get that right? Like there is a standard. Um, I'm not going to judge you and accuse you, but stop sinning. <laughs> and then as the church, when we, when we engage on topics, sometimes it's complicated to say such direct things and to be compassionate and gracious and, and talk about these topics. So if you walk into a church, most of them have one of these three stances, either a welcoming and affirming stance or a welcoming but non-affirming or a non-welcoming and non-affirming. So welcoming and affirming is we welcome anyone and we also affirm your lifestyle and your choices. New Creation about 10 years ago adopted the second stance that we are a welcoming community, that anyone is welcome to participate or be a part of our public church celebrations and our life groups, but we don't always confirm someone's lifestyle. And non-welcoming is you are not allowed in our church celebrations or our, our church life, and we are non-affirming. And it's based on how your philosophy around ministry. And we've got this picture, a centered set versus a bounded set. Now the bounded set is there's this, this boundary that separates those that are in and those that are out. And we all play this game. The people that are the in group, those that look like they have it all together and are holy, and those that we think are on the out. They don't belong in a place like this. And the philosophy is around, you need to believe, then you need to behave a certain way before you can belong. The, the centered set doesn't have that strict boundary that separates the in and the out. We believe that you can believe, you can belong, and then there is a process of becoming closer to Jesus. The more you become closer to Jesus, the more you become like him and you look like him and behave like him. See, the problem with the bounded set is people that look like they are in and have it all together actually behind the scenes are 
living in sin and their life is a big mess. It's hard to judge from the cover of a book. So we, we want to adopt this thing that says, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've submitted your life to him, that he's Lord of your life, master of your life, that you are taking steps to become more and more like him. And we want to say everyone is, a part, is welcome to participate on that journey. And we have people that attend this church that haven't really given their lives and hearts to Jesus yet, but are on a journey of believing and becoming and then hopefully behaving. Now here's the line that is difficult, that when you are a welcoming community and that it seems like you endorse and welcome people, that you then endorse certain behavior. And that's where it becomes more tricky when we start doing life together and I actually find out a little bit more about your life and I know your lifestyle, that the discipleship then starts taking place. And we don't just want to just say because you are welcome, you can live a certain way or behave a certain way or practice how you live. That acceptance is not an endorsement of a person's behavioral practices. We don't just want to legitimize behavior. So for example, a young couple that may come into a church that um, may be living like a married couple, they're having sex outside of marriage, they look like a great couple, but actually that is fornication that the Bible talks about. And we want to say to you, listen, either move out of your bedrooms or move out of your house or just get married as quickly as possible. That we want to just, we don't just want to say that's fine. We want to say that this is what the Bible says and we want to walk, encourage you to walk in righteousness. And the closer you become to leadership, obviously there's higher standards there. So we either adopt a historical view or a progressive view. Or another term would be a affirming or a non-affirming view. And as I said in the beginning, I know that there are people in this church that may view this a little bit differently to me. The debate is not what the Bible says. The debate is what does the Bible mean? So I'm gonna read scriptures to you and we're not questioning what the Bible says. We are going to debate what the Bible means. And this is why I called this sermon, Does God Say? Does God really mean this? Is it really that clear? So I'm going to give you five common questions around this topic and try to answer them. I have to, in a sense, give you my personal stance today. I can't just sit on the fence and um, yeah, I just, I'm going to share my opinion why I believe what I believe. So the first question is this, and this is a question I've heard in our church. What is wrong with consensual same-sex relationships? They're not hurting anyone. Why does the church have a problem with this? Well, there are seven primary biblical text around this topic, and they're all negative. And that's the challenge. And I'm gonna encourage you to read these seven passages this week. If you want to engage on this topic, you then have to go and do some homework yourself. I will send this PowerPoint out to the life group leader so you will have access to these notes. But the first one's in Genesis, and I'm not gonna read the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are narrative, these are stories. The story in Judges 19 is a terrible story, which we not, just don't have time to read. And then we've got these two passages in Leviticus that talks about the holiness code. Israel's about to enter the promised land, and, 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 and God has a standard that he calls his holy people to live by, which is different to maybe the nations that they are entering in. And when you read the Old Testament, for those that have read the Old Testament, it's important to read it through three lenses. You've got the moral law, 
which is the ethical law, which is still applicable today. You've got the civil law, which was their national laws that has fallen away. And then you also have the ceremonial laws, the food you can eat, um, having sex with a, your wife that is on her menstrual cycle, you then become unclean. Those are some of the ceremonial laws that fall away. But the moral laws, when you read Leviticus 19, it talks about incest, it condemns incest, it condemns adultery, it condemns child sacrifices, having sex with animals, it talks about theft, talks about taking the Lord's name in vain, it talks about wearing clothes that have two different types of material cotton. So you need to know how to read it between the moral laws, the civil laws, and the ceremonial laws. I want to encourage the young generation not to say things like, oh, that's Old Testament, that doesn't apply to us today. No, actually, Jesus, Peter, um, who else was it? Uh, Paul, they all actually quoted verses from Leviticus. So Leviticus is not a fun book to read for those that have read it. But you can't wipe it off and say that's not applicable to us. There are things in there that we still live by that Jesus refers to and Paul refers to. So has God really said? Has God really said that homosexual sin or intercourse is sin? Or has God really said that intercourse between same-sex people is sin? And this comes down to your answer to that. And what authority do you answer? What authority is there to say this is true and this is false? So many people, when you have this debate, will say things like research says, or science says, or culture says, or the danger with the young generation is the things I've watched on TikTok and social media and Netflix and culture is telling me this. This is why it's right. And I want to say, what does the Bible say? And someone uh, called Timothy Johnson, I, I honor him for his honesty in his stance. He is a, he's got a non-affirming, no, sorry, he has an affirming stance. And this is where he says his authority comes from. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority that we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that, our claim, that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. Can you hear he's saying that there is authority higher than God's word that they are using to make decisions and their stance? So it's an important thing to say, where do you get the authority to make this, this stance on what is true and what is not true? You may say to me today, well, Paul, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality once, which he never. I wonder why. But Paul says some interesting things. Um, in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians, and those are going to be the passages that we're going to look at today. So for those of you who have actually studied this topic, we'll probably throw out a question like this to me. Paul, don't the pro prohibition passages only apply to non-consensual sexual relations? For example, rape, the master-slave relationship, and pediatry? 
And I want to say, yes, the Greco-Roman area, roughly 600 BC to 8400, forms the backdrop, backdrop to the New Testament and informs any responsible interpretation of it. So when we hear some of the terrible things that goes on in pornography, this was simply called life in the Greco-Roman world. Um, Caesar Nero, who was the emperor around the time that Paul wrote Romans, was married to a 12-year-old boy named Sporus. He, he made him dress in women's clothing and called him, called him lady. He was also married to another man and another woman, and at his wedding, he played the wife. Now, do you think us, President Cyril Ramaphosa would get away with behaving like that in today's world? We live, when we talk about the Greco-Roman world, the ancient world, it is crazy to read some of these stories. You think this world is, the, the culture we live in now is sick. It is really interesting to read. Um, so going back to the question, most, the most common form of same-sex relationships occurred between men and boys, or more, more specifically between men and male teenagers between the age of 13 and 17. Scholars called this pediastry, which means the love of boys. Then you also have this power domination between the master and the slave. And in that culture, it was really accepted that same-sex acts were fine as long as it was done by the person of a higher social status and the passive partner was someone of a lower social status. This sort of behavior was evident in Paul's time. So when he's writing uh, to, to the Corinthians, and when he is writing this, this, some of these verses in Romans, he has reference to this culture. He has, he has Greek words, and he knows the words that is used to describe some of this behavior. So some say that adult consensual same-sex relationships didn't exist in this period, and therefore the New Testament writers didn't have this in view when they mentioned and prohibited same-sexual relationships. This is the debate today. Paul, we can't hold to the standard because the writers of the New Testament don't understand what our world is like now and what it looks like now. I want to say to you is that this argument doesn't really hold up today. There is evidence. I don't know why this is turned off now. There we go. There is reference in ancient literature of adult consensual same-sex relationships. Clement of Alexandria, um, Ptolemy of Alexandria, Lucian, Plutarch, um, Plato, Symposium, give reference to same-sex marriages or unions in that time. And again, this is where if you want to jump deep into this topic, there are cultural things that you have to study. You have to study the Greco-Roman world and the culture. When Paul is saying something to the Romans, what are they hearing? What are they understanding by it? That's why it's not just taking a scripture verse and trying to work out what the verse says. It's also studying the culture of the day. And this is hermeneutics. And last week, I mentioned this Greek word, Paraphysin that talks about this unnatural sex in Romans 1, which is also a, a word that you can then dig a little bit deeper into. But when we read Romans 1, and I'm going to do so now, even if there's no evidence of consensual same-sex unions, even if there's no evidence in literature, I want to say that Romans 1 uses mutual language. Paul considers both people involved in the sex, the sex act to be doing something wrong in this Romans 1 passage. She doesn't use language that, ex that suggests exploitive sex 
or the power differential. He doesn't refer to rape or to, to pediatry. He doesn't limit his words to men having sex with male prostitutes. The language seems all-inclusive and suggests mutuality. He doesn't single out the actor partner at all, nor does he use language that reflects the dominator or dominated paradigm. And this is where you need to, for yourself, read these verses and come up with a stance. So Romans 1 verse 24, I read it last week and I'll read it again. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise, amen. That is why God abandoned them to shameful desires. Even the woman turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with, one, with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserve. See the mutual language. He's talking about men and men having this, this lust for each other. It wasn't a man and a boy, or it wasn't a man and a, a, a prostitute or a child. It seems to include mutual language. Is, God, is Paul saying that same-sex intercourse is sin? Yes or no? And if you say no, you have to just back up why you say no, especially from a Romans 1 passage. But if you say yes, then I need to take it another step. Is gay sex the worst sin of them all? If we had to list sins from the worst to the least, Christians are great at putting homosexuality up there as like the worst sin possible. Do you know why most of us do it? It's because we put the sins up there that we don't struggle with, up at the top. And then the sins that we struggle with, we just say, oh, that's not so bad. We put them lower down on the list. This is what I talk about when I say the hypocrisy when it comes to some of these topics. Here is a verse in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 for me to just share two points with you. Paul says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So many people read that list and go, oh, those who practice homosexuality, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. But let's just look at some of the other ones that he puts in this list. Let's put practice homosexuality with some of these other sins. Those who indulge in sexual sin. Let's talk about that next week. Let's talk about the pornography pandemic that we have in our culture. This affects all of you, those who practice, who indulge in sexual sin. Those who worship idols, do you know what the, idol the idols, the idolatry is today in the church? Consumerism and materialism. Those are the idols that we bow down today. Then it talks about um, committing adultery, male prostitutes. It talks about thieves. 
What is the thief? Just the person that steals or the person that steals from the tax man? None of us are thieves. What about greedy people? He puts practicing homosexuality with greedy people. There are no greedy people in this church, right? What about drunkards? Or abusive or people that cheat? None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. You were once like this, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God. So this word practice homosexuality comes down to these Greek words, and here's the debate. Here's the the question, different translations translated, men who practice homosexuality, men who have sex with men, or nor homosexuals nor sodomites. But the affirming scholars that affirm same-sex relationships and affirm it to be fine would take these Greek words to refer to exploitive sex, that it's all about people being exploited sexually, and it does not refer to adult consensual same sex. So this word malakoi, this malakoi talks about, it means soft or delicate, and it can talk about clothing. For instance, the New Testament, uh, it's used in the New Testament to describe soft clothing. It was often used to describe men who looked and acted like women, that is, effeminate men. Not every person accused of being a malakos necessarily engaged in sex with other men, but every man who played the passive role in homosexual sin could be called malakos. Therefore, malakos does not necessarily refer to same-sex intercourse, but often did. And here's the Greek word where the controversy and the debate is all about. Arsenokortai. Arsenokortai is actually a compound word made of two Greek words. Arson, which means male, and corte, which means bed, to bed, to bed a man or to sleep with a man. Paul uses a word that is never used before. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except the same phrase that he uses in 1 Timothy. So what does this word mean if you only have it mentioned once in the Bible? And it seems to be a word that Paul makes up. It seems to be a word, if you take the, the passage in Leviticus 20 verse 13, he takes arsenokos and korten and he puts them together. Is this parallel striking, is this, so, is this is so striking that it appears to be intentional? Could it be that Paul uses a word or even creates a phrase based on the two parts of the compound word found in Leviticus 20 verse 13? The affirming view mentions the connection but says it's speculative and lacks eternal confirming evidence. But I want to ask you today, what is speculative about connecting Arsenokortos to one of the only places Arsen and Korte occur together in the Bible? You need to know your stance on your interpretation of this Greek word when you get into a debate with someone that affirms or someone that is non-affirming. Let me try to wrap up quickly because I see I've hit um, the 30-minute mark. Are people born with same-sex orientation? Did God make them this way? It's not fair if God made them this way. Well, the American Psychological Association, um, for instance, concludes that both nature and nurture both have a part in creating same-sex attraction. There's no consensus among scientists 
about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has been examined, has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, and developmental, social, and cultural influence on sexual orientation. No findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most pe people experience a little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. I don't remember being 13 one day looking at ladies going, ah, I'm going to be attracted to women. I'm choosing to be attracted to women. And my gay friend decided, no, I'm not going to be attracted to women. I'm going to be attracted to men. It's not just that simple. When you talk about nature and nurture, and if you look at some of the upbringings and maybe a child that is rejected by the same-sex parent, or maybe a child has a, a relationship, uh, unhealthy relationships with someone of the opposite sex, or there's abuse, you can look at all these reasons why you want to try to work out why someone has same-sex attraction, but there are no simple answers to this. So when people say, Paul, do you think homosexuality is a sin? I often ask the question, what do you mean by homosexuality? You've got same-sex attraction, you've got same-sex orientation, and you've got same-sex behavior. Same-sex attraction is this enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and sexual attraction to someone of the same sex. Orientation is where there is a stronger, more fixed attraction, and same-sex behavior is where you're acting out on those desires that leads to sexual intimacy. Justin Lee um, says this, he says, because an attraction or a drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act on. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of ways. If gay people's same-sex attractions were inborn, that wouldn't necessarily mean it's okay to act on them. And if we all agree that gay sex is sinful, that wouldn't necessarily mean that same-sex attractions aren't inborn. inborn. Is it a sin and does it have biological roots are two completely separate questions. So an example of this is a young man in church has same-sex attraction and he's never acted on it. He believes that acting on it, the, the lifestyle of it is a sin. But he was talking to an elder in the church one day and, and while he was expressing his same-sex desires, the elder said something like, oh, well, we can't, we can't approve of that lifestyle. And the guy's like, what lifestyle? These are same-sex desires or attraction, but I'm not behaving and living a certain lifestyle. And that elder couldn't see the difference between someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and someone who's chosen to live a certain way. And you need to know the difference between same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. So what does it mean in practice to be a welcoming and not a, a non-affirming church. And, and as our leadership team, we're going to wrestle this thing through. So 10 years ago, we decided on the stance, but in practice, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Again, theory is sometimes easier to talk about than, than what it means for people to be a part of this family, feel like they belong, but to walk a journey with them. Holiness is a difficult path for every Christian. Whether, depend, either way, whether you're straight or gay, holiness is a difficult path for all of us. 
We all have unique challenges to walk in holiness. I read a testimony of a guy, Ron, who has chosen a celibate gay, he's, he's a celibate gay Christian. And he says, is celibacy difficult? He says, yes. But so is marriage. So is grad school. 50% of marriages fail. Does that, is that an easy option? He says, no. He says, does it get frustrating at times to be a single gay man? And he says, yes. But watching someone raise toddlers sometimes looks very challenging from the outside. Has there been times that you, you want to give, give up? And he said, yes. So there are challenges either way. David Bennett in his book, The, Love, the War of Loves, talks about celibacy and he looks at the future in heaven where there is no marriage, where there is no sex. And he says, um, I'm choosing to, what I'm choosing to do is live today, to live into the future today. In the future, I'll have complete unity and be married to Jesus. I live in that reality today. So I have chosen in my struggle with same-sex desires that I've chosen a life of celibacy. And in a sense, I'm living the future of heaven today, living a celibate life. But what does it mean for us to support Christian brothers and sisters who are living this way? And here's the practice, and this is where I want to challenge us as a church. We can talk about we don't believe in abortion, but are we willing to adopt the child? It's easy for us to pick up, put a sign that says we, we don't believe in abortion, but are we willing to foster and adopt children? We can stand up and say it is wrong to practice a, a homosexual lifestyle, but are we willing to embrace someone in their celibacy and in their, their loneliness and embrace them as part of your family and bring them into the home and let them be a part of your family so they're not living lonely and isolated? Because this is where it becomes practical. What does a welcoming but not affirming community look like? If people, especially marginalized people and broken people came into our church community, they should never want to leave. And I don't know how good we are at actually loving people who are different to us and having the capacity. And this is Pentecost saying, the Holy Spirit, would you help us to love people who are different to us? To love people that drain us and are broken and are struggling and to bring them to our li- into our lives and love them. I want to say this, I've got a, we've got a positional paper that I can email you. If you give your name at the information desk after the service, it's about 95 pages, so it's easier for us to email it to you. And there you can go into depth. You can read about all these Greek words. You can read about all the different stances um, and some of the theology around this session today. And some of you really don't care, which is fine. But those that want to dig deeper, go put your name down at the information desk and we'll e- email you our positional paper. But I want to end off with just these five Quick points. Can we cultivate an environment where people who experience same-sex attraction can talk about it? Can we look at a younger generation and say that this is a safe place to talk about it? Please rather talk to us about it than not talk about it. Let's rather engage than just leave. Is that okay? And if someone walks in from the LGBTQI community, can we listen to their stories before we just are quick to judge? That lady that was, that was raped by her father for four years, 
I can tell you now, you would have a lot of compassion for her. Doesn't matter what she wears and what she looks like when she comes into this place, you would show compassion to her because you heard her story. And too often we're quick to judge people based on what they look like or what, how they speak or whatever. But can we, can we hear people's stories? We're all broken in some way. Can we put homophobia to death? No one should say we don't want someone like that in our church. Based on their skin color, socioeconomic status, their sexual identity, what they look like, please. Let them come and encounter Jesus. Let Jesus change them. Let Jesus work in their life. Let Jesus, can, can we lead people to encounter Jesus and can we represent Jesus well? Be holy as I am holy. It doesn't matter whether you're straight or gay, you have to wrestle with that verse. What does it mean to walk in holiness? And lastly, the phrase that says, love the sinner, hate the sin. I wanna to say to you, love others and hate your own sin. Hate the sin that is in your life that no one gets to see. The sin that you commit behind closed doors. Hate that sin and be focused on dealing with that sin. And can we love? Holy Spirit, would you help us love? I'm gonna invite the worship team up and we are going to end with a song today. And it's a song that says, I will build my life upon your rock. It is a firm foundation. So whatever your stance is, whatever your belief is, whatever your reasoning is, Lord Jesus, we wanna build our lives upon your foundation. We wanna to submit to the authority of your word. We want to live according to your principles and we want your, your word to be alive and living. And we want your word to change us. So even today on, on Pentecost Sunday, Holy Spirit, you know our struggles, you know our thoughts, you know our tendencies, you know where we sin, you know where we fall short. You know, Holy Spirit, that each one of us falls short of your glory. Not one of us can maintain that standard of holiness. We're all sinners saved by grace. So God, help us to walk in humility in the way that we love others, the way that we show affection and care to other people. I pray that Jesus, as each one of us are on a different journey to you, I pray that we would know how to encourage each person to take that next step to you. I pray, Jesus, that you would change us from the inside out. Would you change the way we think? Would you change the way we feel? Would you change our behavior so that we can be more like you, Jesus, and help us to represent you well? In a hurting and broken world, in a world of darkness, I pray, Jesus, that we truly could be light, that we would truly represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen.